0: Welcome to episode 65. Today, the renowned Dr. Ulfilia Garcia will help us incorporate translanguaging into our classes. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful If you've been listening to my podcast for a while now, you know that I end the podcast conversation with traffic light teaching. If someone would ask me my biggest red light, it would be to stop having English only policies at schools. To be perfectly honest, I was one of those teachers that would police my students' home language use when at school. I remember giving students points and taking away points every time they use Chinese. I would write on reports saying, this student would do so much better if they stopped using Chinese in class or Thai or Lao. I now know that I was unintentionally colonizing students' home languages and in effect severing their connection with their communities. In stark contrast to English-only policies, we now have translanguaging. It's the practice of using different features in one language, in another. Many of you are already encouraging your students to translanguage at home and at school. And if you're doing that, I know your students feel loved, welcomed, and valued. And if you're an advocate of translanguaging, then our gratitude should go to Dr. Ophelia Garcia, who has pioneered and campaigned for it for so many decades. Now, on to today's podcast. With me today is the one and only, the legendary, the gatekeeper, of our field, one of the gatekeepers of our field, who has led our field in in a way that where it's more inclusive now is Dr. Ophelia Garcia. Uh, When when we talk about translanguaging, your name always comes up as a person that has really pioneered it for us, has made it accessible for us, and really has defined it for us. So um, I am so grateful that, you have taken the time again to to share uh, to teachers around the world your work. So welcome, Dr. Ophelia Garcia.
1: Thank you, Tan. I uh, really appreciate the the invitation, and especially to be um, uh, invited to speak to dialogue with you, who are who is in Thailand and. Uh, with teachers all over the world. I don't like to hear myself be called one of the gatekeepers. I'm hopefully opening up caminos, opening up uh, paths for others, not closing them at all. (laughs) So I want to make sure that that's clear from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, You're opening pathways to
0: us and helping us understand it. For kids in particular, I've been listening to a lot of your uh, interviews and podcasts and In one way, you talked about a student who helped you understand what translanguaging was. Um, Would you talk about
1: that? Oh, yes, Uh, this is very important because people sometimes, when they read me, um, think that I have pulled translanguaging. It's another theory that I pulled out of my hat. And uh, translanguaging is uh, the base, the grounding of it. Is not theoretical at all. It uh, really comes from practice, from observing, from being in classrooms they have today, from observing students carefully. And um, I was, uh, I've had a very traditional um, training in sociology of language. I was fortunate to have been Joshua Fishman student. Uh, but sometimes I thought, well, these theories um, do not reflect my reality, my bilingual reality, my community, um, the way in which we use language at all. Uh, but you know, as, as a young scholar, I thought, all right, well, they know better. I have to start thinking about it through their lenses. And as I, you know, as I grew older, I, I realized that. Uh, what I was seeing, what I was observing was very different. And uh, yes, absolutely, the, um, I always say that the watershed moment for me when I was able to really uh, own it was one day when I was in a classroom, uh, it was a fifth grade dual language bilingual classroom. At that point, it was the beginning of this movement of always separating languages and having classrooms in which work. Half of the students were um, uh, minoritized students, actually. In this case, uh, these were all Latino kids, and then uh, some who were not. uh, And they they were doing this language separation, which was one day in one language and and the next day in the other language. And as I sat next to uh, a child, I I always learned a lot from what the children say. Uh, He said to me, Um, uh, you know, uh, he said, English, let me see if I can remember it. You may remember it better than me. But he said something like, um, English rules my heart and Spanish go through my body. I I forget. But the idea was that, you know, he was referring to a system that he had. Uh, and that this was not what we were doing in the teaching. In the teaching, it was only in English and only in Spanish the next day. But when you sat next to children, what they were doing with the text in English one day or in Spanish the next day, was really using their entire repertoire. They weren't separating it in the ways that we were teaching. So um, I started to feel that there was, something there that existed, that we had not described theoretically. So I always say translanguaging came from the practice, from what I was observing, from, um, from just being, sitting with, seeing with the children and with the teachers, what they were doing, because when they described what they did, they didn't describe it as they were translanguaging. But when you listened and observed what they were doing, you certainly saw it in action. So, um, and I have to say that, you know, the term, as I always say, was coined in Welsh. Uh, and um, and I had a very um, close relationship at that time with Colin Baker. Um, and Colin Baker, uh, after coming to New York City one time, said to me, you, you should come and take a look at what we're doing in Wales, because Ken Williams, who was a teacher and was writing his dissertation at that point, um, started thinking the way again in which we're doing this does not make sense because these children are Welsh, but they're also English speakers. They're not living in a community by themselves, they're living in Wales within the UK. So, how do you? how do you mobilize all their resources Uh, and so um the term itself of course uh was an extension of what ken williams had uh described in the classroom practice so again i want to you know i want to say that uh that translanguaging is grounded in experience is grounded in practice and i think us all uh theories theories should emanate from reality, um, and I think, you know, you theorize, and then you look again, and then that changes a little bit, and so it shifts as, as, as reality changes uh, in different contexts differently, um, but certainly it came from observing a child, and a child who had something to say that was very, very meaningful, and that started uh, that got me thinking that what we were doing was not the right thing
0: to do. Um, what okay. I love about that story is that you were such a respected scholar in the field and yet this what you're known for, translanguaging, uh, it, it happened with a student. You're just sitting next to the student and observing. And then that's yeah. that's how a lot of us teach where we, we try to we we work and we teach kids but our best practice happens when we observe kids and we let them lead us. And that's what you just, absolutely. Did, right?
1: that
0: was a beautiful story.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and focus on their strengths on what it is that they have uh, not what it is that they, where, where it is that they should be. Uh, but I, th- I think if you look with a lens of finding strengths, you find them. So um, I think that's what's important when you observe the children. I think that's, I know
0: that you said that uh, in your past interviews that you came to Cuba when you were, you came to the U.S. from Cuba when you were 10. And Mm -hmm. both you and I share a very similar experience. We're coming to the U.S. when we were both very young. And then uh, at that time, uh, the school practice was to separate uh, home practices from school practices and because of that, that, that that separation of home and school caused kids to feel separated from school. They couldn't bring their whole identity. I think Jim Collins, uh, Jim Cummings said that when students are not allowed to bring their home language to school, uh, they leave a significant amount of who they are out of school. So for the past several decades, you've been working in this field and trying to advocate for Uh, language learners what do you wish you knew now that you didn't know then after your years of working at work
1: oh oh I think um you know you say that I've learned a lot from observing students um in schools but I've also learned a lot from students from younger scholars like you um, and I think that's what's really important. What's important is to know, and I know I've been criticized for it, but I think it's so important to know that things move, that things yeah. are not static, that ideas that you have at a certain historical point are cannot be the same at another historical point because yeah. um, everything changes. I, I, there's a a Latin American now deceased um, folk singer who used to do Canciones de Protesta, uh, who has Mercedes Sosas is her name. She's Argent, she was Argentinian. And while she was in exile, she wrote a song that's uh, titled Todo Cambia, Everything Changes. And I really believe that, that everything changes. And when things change, you have to change. Uh, because what you're seeing is different and you're looking through different lenses. So I, one thing that I would I would have liked to understand when I was young was that I could trust my own lenses without them being um, uh, blurred, I would say, by theoretical, understandings that I was acquiring from my teachers. Uh, uh, It took me a very long time to be courageous enough um, to sort of depart from what I had been taught. So I think that's one thing that I would have uh, wanted. I would have wanted the courage to say things that I think young people now say, um, maybe because they are more scholars, uh, especially minority scholars working on these issues. Uh, but I think they're just more courageous. I think that uh, young people are, young scholars are now more courageous uh, than than I was. So I wish I had had the courage. Um, what else would I want? I, I, I also um, uh, wish I had known that um, policies and language policies and education language education policies uh, can never work top down if there isn't movement bottom up. Yes. So I I think um, uh, you know I I I have moved away from traditional language policy work because I'm more interested in what's happening on the ground. Um, A big change for me has been um, the work on racial linguistic ideologies that has taken place in the last five years, 10 years. Um, One of them, my student who, of whom I'm very proud, Nelson Flores, who taught me, that uh not only that race and language were linked i mean i had always known that but to call it by that by that name to name it in that way i mean when i was young we used to always talk about ethno-linguistic minorities but never racial linguistic minorities in any way um and i think that has been a big change um the same with gender so um uh, these are categories that um, I think are now so prevalent in scholarship and so important. And so I, 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 um, I didn't see the relationship between them. I didn't see the connection to colonialism, yes. to how, how colonialism had uh, actually of cost, I mean, how, how language and race and gender are in some way the effect of colonialism, uh, not just causes for discrimination. And I think that's a very important difference that I learned from um, the colonial theorists, especially um, a man by the name of Lin-Mario de Sousa, Meneses de Sousa, a Brazilian a sociolinguist. Um, who has really led me again in my old age um, to uh, the Latin American decolonial theory? I wish I had been exposed to that earlier. Um, I wish my training had not been, uh, um, you know, within a discipline, but more interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that I think, you know, I wish I had known, or I wish I had had. Um, I'm not uh, particularly sad about my trajectory. Um, I think I was fortunate to have been taught by a lot of wonderful people who taught me a lot um, and actually gave me permission to see differently. Uh, But I wish I had earlier come to the conclusion (laughs) that I could say things differently and uh, that was okay. I don't know if that answers your question, but
0: it, it does. I'm, I'm writing yeah. so many things down. I'm I'm hearing a pattern. You kept talking about courage, and how the young scholars are helping you speak in courage. What are those young scholars saying?
1: Um, I think that the most important um, thing that has happened. I I um, let's see. I uh, attribute. The opening of my eyes, you know, as as a certain point in which you start saying, "Okay, I am seeing, and I'm seeing differently. I'm this Mm -hmm. is different from what I was seeing before, when everything went through interpretations that were uh, according to theories that had come before, right?" and I attribute that uh, to my coming to the Graduate Center, City University. I had been at, at Teachers College at Columbia University um, and um, uh, really missed being in a public institution because I think that public institutions are important. Um, also, I think that um, in, in working with m- students who were going for master's in teacher education, we were constrained uh, by a lot of people, a lot of regulations from the state. Teachers have to have this type of course, this type of course, this type of course. And those courses in some ways fragmented understandings um, and were very specific and, and pushed you to think about strategies rather than think of the children what they needed um and even though again i was influenced by a lot of good people i had wonderful colleagues at teachers college i had also the influence of maxine green of releasing the imagination so it's it's uh, a wonderful wonderful students. but it wasn't until i got to the graduate center where i was working with doctoral students and this these were um being a public institution meant that the doctoral students were mostly from um, the New York area, Uh, many urban uh, students, Uh, many came with a sophistication of uh, critical race uh, studies and critical race theory, um, gender studies, um, so that, all of a sudden, um, and, and, and very interdisciplinary, right? So I had students who were doing linguistic anthropology and students who were doing education and students who were doing sociology. And this richness of dialogue, I think, is what, uh, what created uh, the ability to open up, open up cracks, open up holes uh, a vision to enable me to see further. So I, I, um, I attribute all of it to being able to work in collaboration with others, including when I had to work in schools because we had a, a wonderful team, a project called um, cuny Um We just actually published a collaborative book edited by all of us of the work that we did over six years in schools in New York State um, and that dialogue was rich and it created um, a familia, a family that, uh, that was able to really work across differences. And I think that, that shaped a lot of what I uh, lately hold dear.
0: Well, you said earlier um, that your, your journey has, working with other people have helped you open your eyes to see differently and you see the world differently. And you have done that for us. uh, Oh, thank you. So um, I want to thank you for that. I also want to talk to you about um, how is teaching a political act? Because that's very similar to uh, you bringing up the ideas of your young scholars, um, helping you find courage to talk about that.
1: Right. Um, I think that is most important um, because one thing that happened with the translanguaging concept is that it, as it, um, as it went around the world, which I think is very important, and but and again, you know, it wasn't just me; it was a, a, a group of us. I think more and more scholars have um, thought about it and tried to think about how to how to implement it in classrooms. Um, as it as as it went around it started to lose um its uh, its transgressive uh, elements which mm. I think is is essential right I mean the idea again bringing it back to the classroom uh to what we were what the teachers were not doing to the policy in the state that was not um, that was not uh allowing um these children to work with their whole repertoire um, so all of that uh, started to get lost it started to get lost because people started to understand translanguaging as just the going from one language to the other yeah. um, and um it was actually again nelson flores again you know i want to say that i learned a lot from my students who had a blog one time um, and said, translanguaging is a political act. And since then, I've sort of been repeating it uh, because unless it it is a political act, unless it is an act of... um, transgressing the boundaries that have been imposed upon us, language boundaries, uh, ethnic boundaries, national boundaries, subject, academic subject boundaries, unless you transcend all that so that uh, these children can re-exist as bilingual beings without Mm -hmm. having to always be compared to um, white monolingual students um, it, it doesn't mean anything. It loses its value. Um, so teaching has to be a political act. It has to be a, an act about um, uh, helping students acquire a critical consciousness. Um, all of them, whether they're you know, majority students who are elite and have an obligation and a responsibility to see Uh, Differently to work for a a more socially just world or racialized, minoritized students who also need to understand um, uh, and have a consciousness uh, of themselves and of the forces, the historical and, and present forces that oppress them in certain ways. So how do you bring the students to, to understand their strengths? Uh, how do you get the teachers to see their strengths? Not always to um, evaluate what it is that they're lacking but rather assess, see what it is that they have. And I think that's that's, the, that's where the political act occurs. A political act occurs um, in my case, because the work is with schools, the political act works is does not is it, not about um, community organizing. Even though community engagement is important if we're going to do this, the work is about the political act is about <laughs> um, opening up worlds, more just worlds for the children who are in your classroom. That's where the the political act acts. It, I remember
0: in one of your interviews, you said entre mundos.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the between, so, so students are moving between worlds where they're a part of, and right. then teachers welcoming students' worlds into an academic, to the school world and saying, oh, that world exists here too. I, it's very similar to your concept of like one language system. When I heard about that, like my mind was blown away. and I was like, Oh yes, there is only one language system and we're just and you often say mobilize from your repertoire right. of language.
1: Right. Right. Can you talk? Yeah, about Entremundos. Um right. Entremundos comes from um from Gloria and Saldua's work, right? Uh the idea that all of us who who are bilingual, uh, who are, have been minoritized in one way or the other uh in some ways live um in these two worlds and we're neither of one nor the other and yet of both right so um it's 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 very very important because i think that teachers also have to ensure that their students uh, or or uh, acknowledge their students' lives entre mundos, and by that I mean, um, often it is about um, making sure that you understand that maybe um, if you're a bilingual teacher, you have to get the students to read a text in Chinese and read a text in English, for example. Um, but uh, so so that the so that because at times um, you want to be in one world or in the other. But of course, what happens is that uh, the, the children live in the mundos, right? So uh, what's important is to remember that the process of, of teaching, the, the process by which the children arrive at a product that may be in one language or the other. The process is always a, a lot more dynamic than simply being in one language or the other. It's entre mundos, right? Uh, that children are really mobilizing, like you say, uh, this unitary repertoire that they have. This repertoire of gestures, of drawing, of of uh, one w- what we would call one language or the other. So there is this unitary repertoire that we all uh, uh, have that we all with which we all work I don't want to say we have but uh, which with which we all do language right uh, that has to be mobilized if we want our students to get to a product um, and you know I think that's that's you know I, I'm glad that you use the word mobilize because I think that is one of the issues with teachers are they always seeing the act of teaching as, uh, as being static. Um, the text is in one language. And I always say, okay, the text may be in, in Spanish and you may want to get the students to read in Spanish, but these children in order to make meaning of the text in Spanish are going to have to use all the repertoire that they have. And the repertoire that they have is not simply just Spanish because mm-hmm. they are living in an English speaking world. So um, you have to be able to allow them to make sense of it uh, with this, uh, with this uh, uh, unitary repertoire. And that's why I always speak about also the, the translanguage in corriente. I use the, the word in Spanish, a current that's always in the classroom because if you've if you've taught, you know that you're always teaching one thing and the children are in another world because that's just what children do. But mm-hmm. um, and and the same with the, the translanguaging, you may not see it; it may not come to the surface, right? Mm-hmm. I o- often have teachers that say, "Oh yeah, no, but." We're doing this all in English, and everybody understands. And everybody, yeah, it may not come to the surface, but it's always there. It's always present. And and after all, why shouldn't you use resources that that the students have? I mean, I, I don't. I this this is something I never understand. Why limit them? Why why rob them of the opportunity to use all of their resources? That's what we as teachers. Um, must want uh, the idea that we are educating intelligent, imaginative children who are who are able to pull from their life experience, from their languages, from their modes of operation, how to embody um, this uh, lesson that you want to give. So. Um, So I'm always amazed that teachers sometimes seem very interested in having students accomplish task A, X in in English, for example. Um, And they're really very well-meaning. And yet they don't understand that students are a lot more than just English. So (laughs) why, why don't you give them the opportunity to act with what they have not what they're lacking because that's also the problem that that we're pushing them to act only with what uh they're lacking and we're always comparing and and so this is it's important to feel uh presences and not absences
0: so beautiful i remember you said in another podcast you said that with the one language system the, the, the concept we we now dismantle the hierarchy of language.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think um, I think the hierarchies of languages um, exist just like languages. Named languages exist because they're social. Uh, they're social objects, right? They're socio-political constructions. That's the way we've constructed them. But I think by understanding that. Um, that what we have, what we all have, is a unitary repertoire. Whether you're monolingual, whether you're said to be monolingual or bilingual, right? Uh, you have to be. You have a, mon- a, a unitary repertoire. Um, what it does also is it, it um, transcends this idea that you know there's one language that's more powerful than the other, because within you, as a bilingual being. All of these, um, all of these uh, features, all of these discourses, work in tandem uh, there uh, because they have been generated in the mundos in which we live. So, uh, so these hierarchies can be addressed in ways that, when you are separating the languages so strictly and not allowing students to make sense of. A text that they're reading in English, for example, through whatever um, whatever resources they have, whether it's another language or the ability to act or the ability to draw uh, all of that when you're not drawing on that you're certainly. creating hierarchies that are socially and politically constructed but that has nothing to do with the individual with the inside of the individual right with the inside out it's it's just it that's an out in concept not an in out concept
0: and i love that concept of like no language hierarchy because language is tied to culture and when we say this language is the one that we value we We directly say this this culture that is passed to English is the culture that we value more. Right. We very directly say those other cultures that we're not going to be those other languages that we're not allowing. Those cultures also don't matter.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they have no value. Right. They have no value. They take away from from who the child is, and that I think that if you if you see the child as uh, a receptacle of all the influences they have then then you're going to get a fuller picture than if you're only looking at the part of the child that has for example English yeah. so
0: yeah I clearly remember another podcast you you said that um, see you notice how I'm kind of like su- pseudo stalking you because I. Just...
1: <laughs> that's great. <laughs>
0: yeah one, in one of your um, interviews you said that we have to stop seeing kids with an English only lens. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then I got chills. I was like, yes, because they're more than just. Uh, if we compare them to only English, they're only always going to be yeah lacking yeah. in mind.
1: Yeah, you probably heard me say this, but it's a it's a good metaphor, so I'll use it. Uh, I'll repeat it again. Is you know, it, I I always think it's of a drummer, you know, and you're yes. comparing a drummer that can drum with two hands to one that can only that that can only drum with one because you're holding the other one back and then you're comparing their sounds. Well, of course, the one that's using the two hands is going to uh, sound better. And I think that it's, it's important to see it that way. It's important to see the fact that, um, that, uh, you know, if, if we use everything that we have at our disposal, we're going to sound better. We're going to say things that are going to be considered uh, more, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, more adequate, etc. So I think that that is, uh, and and you know, and we have to think about what education is. Education is not simply about uh, performing in one language with or or another. By the way, with certain features, education is about being um, uh, being free to think having ideas and uh, ideas don't emerge in one language or the other, they emerge. Sometimes they emerge as a metaphor, as a, as a, an image. Uh, uh, and that is all that has to be tapped. And that is part of our semiotic repertoire. Uh, the, uh, and that's what education is. Not simply um, the learning of one language or the other,
0: I remember standing in front of a group of teach, uh, parents, I was, I was working with a school um, and they had parents come and they were trying to tell them about like, yes, please allow your, your kids to use their home languages, allow them to use Thai at school as well. Right. And then they, and I just said, listen, there's, there's no, there's only one language and that language is communication. Right. And we use our tools to understand others and we use other tools, we use different tools to be understood. And right. so sometimes kids will use Thai. Sometimes kids will use English. Sometimes right. kids will how to understand. And sometimes right. they'll gesture. Sometimes they'll draw. And sometimes they'll, uh, yeah. they'll yeah. do other things to, to, to communicate. And all those languages feed into one language, which is communication.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I, I like I like the way that you've said that. Um, because, um, yeah, there is... There is um, uh, and, and, uh, one of the problems continues to be that there is still uh, a lot of misinformation about bilingualism and the idea that um, children are mixed up if they uh, if they speak two languages children will never be able to learn to speak if uh, if you speak two languages at home um so there's a lot of, of misinformation that still, to this day occurs in schools, teachers telling the parents don't speak, um, tied to the children, speak English, or mm-hmm. or, or, or speech therapists saying the same thing once, uh, uh, and not being patient with children, right? Um, so, uh, so this is something that those of us do understand how bilingualism develops and multilingualism develops and how we have to be, uh, how if it is important to, to you, right? Uh, because it's important to you as as a person, for your identity, for your for connection to another life, uh, for all of that. If it's important to you, then you have to be patient with the, the, the development of, of two languages or three languages or whatever. It will happen. Now, if you stop using... Um, a minoritized language, for example, because a teacher told you only to speak English. This happens a lot in the United States. Teacher told me just to speak English at home when, of course, you don't even speak English that well as a parent because you came from, I don't know where, five years ago. And so the quality of your interaction is uh terrible and that that really harms the children right because what you're supposed to do at home with your children is the same thing that teachers are supposed to do you're supposed to ask them questions um keep them inquisitive answer their questions um engage them in imaginative play That's what parents need to do, um, you know, uh, and engage them in in good conversation, in good communication, in meaningful communication, not in speaking one language uh, uh, that you may not speak well or that you might not identify with. uh, And therefore you are leaving out your poems, your stories, your, you know, everything else that goes along with a language. So, so yeah, I, the, the, the question I think for, for all of us who are interested in also developing bilingual children is um, we need to be patient and we need to remember that it's not linear um, and that we need to remember that it doesn't happen by just um, adding linear features. It, it happens when there is uh, rich and meaningful communication, um, as you say, uh, and that's what's important.
0: And I love what, how you talked about, hey, parents have a role in developing the student's language because they can, the, the stories, the poems, the, the conversations that parents are having are going to feed to their linguistic repertoire when they, oh. and they're going to use that to ask who as well
1: oh absolutely and you know we have to remember that schools are not just about teaching language and i think that's one of the problems tan that uh that uh, especially uh, those of us in the bilingual education profession or in the teaching language profession we think that language is everything and yet we know that language has been used and it's continuing to be used to exclude uh, not yes. to include but to exclude to exclude mm-hmm. Uh, children from other educational opportunities. Um, So I I think it's important to remember that, that that, uh, education is not about just teaching a language, Uh, that language development and language ability, the ability to language, right? Comes from having ideas, uh, having imagination, having stories to tell, having poems to express, um, having songs to sing. That is where, that is how you how you uh, do language and educate at the same time. But if you're thinking of education is strictly the teaching of language, and unless it's done with certain norms, uh, you can now be educated. What you're doing is you're excluding. And that happens a lot. Uh, in programs that require children to have, to master certain standards, certain norms in order to be promoted to another grade or in order to have access to certain um, to certain programs. For example, it's very often that uh, children who have, who are uh, uh, learning English are excluded from music, from art. Um, and, and, and those are uh, activities that are important for education, to educate a child. Um, and, um, but because schooling is assessed through language, I mean, uh, that's, what, that's what most assessments do. Most assessments do not see the child, most assessments um, uh, basically just assess how the, the child performs in a language that school and society has constructed as the only norm that is important, the only academic language. Whereas what we know is that uh, the, our language capacities go way beyond that.
0: You know, there's only five more minutes of the mm-hmm. podcast, but I can go on for like five more hours just <laughs> listening to you oh good can can I ask two more questions
1: sure of course (laughs) thank
0: you what let's think about the teachers what can you give us some few characteristics or features or um markers where teachers are yes we're trans we're teaching trans languaging or allowing trans language to happen in an ideal world what would that look like in a classroom
1: okay you want to ask the second one and and um and I'll try to answer both of them, but they're so different. The oh, second yes. question?
0: Yeah, the, the second question is, what's the difference between uh, translanguaging, code switching, and, and
1: Oh, okay, all right, that's a, that's, a, that's a different one. So let me just talk about uh, teachers first. Um, I think, you know, we've said uh, in the book that I wrote with Susanna Johnson and Kate Seltzer, uh, that, um, that a translanguaging classroom Demands uh, a uh, teacher that has what we call a translanguaging stance, a translanguaging design, and then the ability to shift, translanguaging shifts, because I think that's, imp- that, that's always very important. Yeah. So uh, I think the stance is important. I think how you get to that stance, to the idea of understanding that children have a unitary repertoire, and using that unitary repertoire in ways that leverages uh, their learning, Um, I think that, that differs depending on the teacher. Um, uh, I, my experience is that teachers have to step into something first in order to develop the stance. In other words, you can tell teachers all you want about having a translanguaging stance. If they have not experienced something, uh, it's very difficult for them to develop the stance. When we did the translanguaging guide, CUNY and ISIP did the translanguaging guide, uh, which we did at the beginning, and it's not that it's a a very good guide to translanguaging, it's guide to strategies, uh, which I don't like to talk about because I think translanguaging is a lot more than strategies. But to work Mm -hmm. with teachers, we needed something to, to start with, to hook, them into and what we did was we, as uh, teachers would select one of the strategies try them out in the classrooms, then discuss with the the uh, with group of teachers and and that's how the stance developed the stance develops you know we all, we talk about the junto stance which means together the together stance and we're not only talking about together being together languages or together uh, together repertoires of, of modes, but we're also thinking about togetherness uh, uh, in a teaching community. I think you cannot do this unless there's a community around you that supports you, a teaching community, uh, not bureaucratic, I'm talking about on the ground, teachers trying it out. Um, so that's what it would take, it would take, um, and we've saw it over and over again with one teacher who when we would talk to them um, would say oh that's interesting i want to try it out and then um showing it to others thinking with others collaborating with others and then that sort of gets the ball rolling so you need a community to get it going i don't know if that answers the first question i'm mindful i'm mindful of the time so i'm going to um answer the second question you're asking Um, And I think a difficult question for people to understand, because we have always we um, the field, the sociolinguistics field has 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 really paid a lot of attention to code switching and code switching in itself was, you know, Gumpers uh, uh, contributions was a, a step ahead, you know, and again, we want to talk about steps. I think that's the way that scholarship develops we have we take little steps things change like I said in the beginning um and um so code switching was meant to for uh, sociolinguists and linguists to understand that bilinguals uh were actually shifting codes shifting languages right it was done from an ex what I always call an external perspective it was done thinking that languages um, not only were socio-political constructions, but had some psycholinguistic reality, right? Um, It was a step in the right direction at the time. There were scholars who really worked on this and who, again, because they had um, a good conscience and and good work, they started um, thinking about well what are the structural constraints that exist in code switching and it was an effort to try to get people to understand that this way of of doing language of using language among bilinguals was um uh, was a norm was um it, it was was fine it wasn't it wasn't crazy like people thought and so again it was a step in the right direction but I think what it did again is it reified even more the idea of languages as separate systems Mm, Uh, and it's all it was it's from the external point of view what translanguaging does is it takes the inside uh, perspective It it takes the internal perspective of the speaker right Uh, i'm speaking now in in english but uh within me i have all these other again what some may say is spanish and french and i may use them differently in different uh within with different uh, communities with within my home in my home I don't speak this way because there's no need to speak this way because I don't have to select features that are common to you and I. I, I, with my husband and my children, my grandchildren, we constantly uh, do what some people would call code switching that are looking at us from the outside, but that I choose to call translanguaging because what I am what i know is that i have a unitary repertoire and that i'm just using my my features in the same way that a monolingual uses their features the only reason why we have um, a harder task than uh, than monolinguals is because monolinguals can use almost all of their entire features all the time i mean there's some curse words etc that you don't say <laughs> but other than that you can use almost all your, res- all your features. Uh, whereas uh, bilinguals can't. It depends on the audience. But within bilingual communities, translanguaging is very visible. So the question, and I think where the confusion comes from the point, from the fact that if you are just looking at language behavior, you might say, oh, this, which so-and-so called code switching, so-and-so now calls translanguaging, but it looks the same. Yes, it looks the same, but the assumptions behind the concept uh, are not the same because the concept of code switching uh, believes that or, or establishes that there are different language systems, different codes that, uh, that you use usually with some um, uh, with some logic, I guess, you know, um, you know wh- whether it's f- for the function or the community or whatever. Whereas when you're talking about translanguaging, uh, you're really privileging the inside view, the fact that uh, there are not two psycho- psycholinguistic um, boxes within me there's only one uh, current, one repertoire that I have, one, one set of resources all in my same bundle, not, not bundled differently. Society may bundle them differently, but individuals do not, communities do not, right? So, so that's the difference. The difference is between looking at it externally versus looking at it from the strength of, of the, the person, who is doing language, right? So that's that's the difference. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah.
0: When you talked, I was thinking of an iceberg, like you see the top, which is like code switching, but then lang- translanguaging is the bottom of what you really don't see.
1: Mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm. uh, Sometimes you see it though. Sometimes you see it because you see it, for example, you might see it in my um, in my home all the time. Uh, because I don't again, I don't have to select features, appropriate features, because everybody in my in my home is bilingual. Do you understand? So I don't have to select it. So there you see it. Uh, but however, when I talk to you, I I you know I select only the features that are again appropriate for this conversation. So that's that's where the difference lies, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but to be able to acknowledge the fact that individuals, um, that communities of practice actually have a repertoire that is a semiotic repertoire, you know, which, which includes different modes of expressing yourself, of communicating and different language, what you, we might call name languages. And that repertoire is a lot, uh, a lot more complex and a lot larger than simply uh, one language. So one named language. So I think that's uh, that's what's important.
0: Thank you for, for clarifying that. Okay. I always end the podcast with an analogy. So um, it, it's called Traffic Light Teaching and it's a red light, a green light and a yellow light. So would you give us uh, a, a red light something that you ask teachers to stop doing uh orange light something that you ask teachers to hey let's this is something we could do to help slow down our practice and a green light is something that you ask teachers to do as much as possible and then we'll end the podcast that way
1: okay so i i know i know what my green light always is green light is sit with the children and observe them um uh don't don't um, start with um external standards. Every child has their own standards and, um, discover what those are, describe them. Don't interpret, describe them first. Right. My red light is, um, again, <laughs> is the, the opposite of that. Uh, don't, uh, don't start with, um, uh, external uh, constraints the with pacing calendars and lessons and and um, uh, don't start with that. I know you have to work with that, and maybe that's my orange. <laughs> I know you have to work with all of these constraints, but um, but how do you adopt adapt it for for the child so that you are working with what they have, not what they don't have. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, for me, it's always the same. It's always, you know, I, I, I've said before, and I'll say it again, that I started out as a progressive educator. Uh, and we only, we only had one thing in mind, which is you build on the strength of children, right? Yeah. And, and for me, bilingual education made sense from the beginning, not only because of its political connotations, um, which in my, in my time were important. They've lost their meaning in the United States, at least now among many, but certainly in my time wasn't where that was very important, but also because um, that, that was the strength of a child. The strength of the child was not the strength of the child was what they brought to the classroom, whether that is Arabic or, you know, what Thai or whatever it is, that is their strength. And you have to build from that. And that's how you build bilingualism.
0: What a great way to end the podcast. I always say that um, when I, when I record my podcast, I always say a little prayer of like, may this serve kids I will never meet. And Dr. Garcia, you have served thousands of students with your work, helping the, us see starting off with students' strengths and, and through translanguaging. So I, we are so indebted to your body of work and your continual advocacy for marginalized students. So I'm so grateful again for, for you sharing.
1: Thank you, Tan, for the invitation. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share with you. Thank, you. Thank you.
0: I invite you to rate this podcast and leave a comment. Each episode takes three to four hours to record and edit. So your comments make all the hours worth it. And your reviews will help educators like you find the podcast. Now, onto our recap. I appreciate Dr. Garcia's central message of translanguaging which is seeing what students bring to schools as strengths to be used and not as barriers to overcome. In the past, our profession saw students' home languages as barriers to learning English. This led to destructive English-only policies. It resulted in telling students that they have to leave who they are in order to participate in schools in our classrooms, in the hallways, in the cafeteria, in the buses, in the fields. Wherever students are, we didn't allow them to use their home language. We didn't celebrate it. And because we didn't encourage it, students felt like they could only bring a piece of them to school and hide the other parts. Anytime someone says, we have to install an English only policy, I want you to tell them this line. Learning English should not be at the expense of students' home language. English is not the only language worth studying, especially not at the expense of their culture and the connection to their home. Join me in advocating against English only policies in your schools and your districts. Join Ophelia in seeing what is present in students rather than what is absent. When we see through English only policies, we see what students are lacking. When we see through a translanguaging lens, we see what students already have with them. If an English only policy is my red light, then translanguaging would be my green light. In the next episode, we'll have Dr. Monica Lara join us to talk about what principals and admins can do to support language learners. Please, please join me in the next episode because it is one of the most inspirational podcasts that I have recorded to this date. After listening to Dr. Lara for just five minutes, you will know why it is the most inspirational podcast so far. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.